0: The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. So, this chapter is all about um, this moment that's very famous even up to this day, right? I would say that largely, um, while American culture has kind of moved past the Bible in a certain sense, uh, this story still carries a very kind of... uh, it's a placeholder, it's a, still a phrase that we use. Um, this last week I was listening to Joe Rogan's podcast and he used the phrase, the writing on the wall to talk about AI and how we're all gonna die. Um, <laughs> um, uh, we are all gonna die, I don't know if it's gonna be at the hands of AI or not, but um, he used the phrase, Just, I, it's still just a present phrase. It was the name of a song by Sam Smith um, in the James Bond movie, Spectre from 2015. It's just continually used, and it's used in the sense of like impending doom. Like it is unavoidable; the end is near. Impending doom. That's kind of the phrase which it used, You know, like ah, well, we all knew that you know such and such company was going to go down. Um, The writing was on the wall when they you know went to public options with their stocks or whatever sort of like business language you can use. But you know, the writing was on the wall as a way of talking about the inevitability of uh, of doom coming. In this chapter, what the phrase is used, the writing on the wall, the where it comes from is this impending, yes, impending doom, but it's not just doom in a general sense. It is impending judgment from God. It is God's judgment that is coming into place. And so before we kind of jump into that, I want to make a little comment about the purpose of the book of Daniel to help us understand how we get into this chapter see, Daniel, while we have all these stories up front, it is still an apocalyptic book. It's a book that, as we've talked about before, apocalyptic literature, like Revelation, all this stuff with all these crazy images in it, all these stories, is a bit like a comic book, right? It shows us something that's going on, like, in these fantastic stories, but there's something deeper going on. So James K.A. Smith, in this book called You Are What You Love, I'm going to reference it later in the sermon. He says this, the point of apocalyptic literature, so the book of Daniel, is not prediction, but unmasking. Ah, imagine if we could all be unmasked right now. <laughs> Doesn't that take, that phrase take on a different form these days? That not prediction, but unmasking, unveiling realities around us for what they really are. So when we start talking about the writing on the wall, God's judgment, Daniel 5, what's going on with all these things, there is something that this whole story's purpose is to unmask this deeper reality. Chapter 1, we saw that pilgrims, people who are following Jesus, are not quite home yet. They're hardly home at all. They live in a place that doesn't even look like the place that they belong. They belong to Jesus, and yet they live in a world much like Manchester, New Hampshire, that is very weird (laughs) and doesn't quite make sense, but is where God has placed them. Chapter 2 and 3, we see that God is with them in the midst of where he has placed them, walks with them through their suffering. Chapter 4, we saw that in the midst of all of this world, God is working to help his his people to be humble, even though they are not with him yet. And then here we are, chapter 5. There is a different type of humbling that needs to happen here in chapter 5, where we begin to see the inner workings of our heart amidst this world, where we are not quite home yet, but God is building his kingdom inside. There's something going on on the inside where we see in Belshazzar's, can we just, can we call him Big B? <laughs> like, because Belshazzar is just like, I just feel like I'm going to belch. Maybe not the best image for talking about a sermon, right? Belchazar, Big B, he is a rock star. He's living the rock star of life. Underneath all of that is something deep and profound about our lives that is going on. We see into the inner workings of Balthazar's heart and where we see there, we see idolatry. So when I say the word idol or idolatry, here's what I think some of us mean. Now, I'm going to make a pop culture reference. I realize some of you youngins may not know what I'm talking about. Jamie, have you seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? You know what I'm talking about? You've seen this? Okay. I'm just saying, some people don't know this reference, but you have at the beginning of the movie, right? Joy, have you seen this movie? Okay. Joy's the one that I always like, am I with the cool kids or am I not? Because if she doesn't know it, then I'm like, I'm, you're, you're a little too old. <laughs> Joy's much cooler than you. <laughs> so beginning, beginning of the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you have Indiana Jones and he walks up all through these contraptions, right? And he gets up and he gets that, that golden idol right in front of him. It's a sandbag. Pulls a little sand, drops it on the ground. Tilts it, holds it up, right? That's what we think of when we think of idols. These little golden things that we bow down to, right? We make another pop culture reference. Joy may not know this is a scary one. Know the movie Aliens? All right, do you remember that part of the movie where the thing jumps out of the guy's chest? (laughs) That's more like the idolatry of this chapter. There's something going on in the inside that is incredibly destructive and powerful that is going to kill you, and that's what this chapter is all about exposing, right? This chapter, little did you know that you were walking in thinking you were getting Indiana Jones and you're getting aliens instead this morning. This chapter is helping us see the inner workings of Beltrazar's Big B's heart, and we are confronted with a mirror to see our own hearts, to see our own inner workings, how we function. In our pilgrim journey, we are going to be asking what stories, what ways have our affections, have our desires been allured by the world around us, been allured by what we want, rather than being shaped in worshiping and enjoying God. So here's the main point of this sermon. Here We're going to throw this up and we're going to talk through this. I'm going to break it down. Live in the story of God's judgment and mercy, perfectly balanced in Jesus Christ. Live in the story of God's judgment and mercy, perfectly balanced in Jesus' life. So, in Jesus Christ. So we're going to see into idols. We're going to see what they are. We're going to see how we actually, one of the things this chapter helps us do, it helps us recognize how we fail to address the idols of our own hearts. How we fail to do it. That's a big point of this. That's a big point of this chapter. And then we're going to see, at the very end, we're going to see God's judgment and how it liberates from us, us from our idols. So, verse 1 to 4, we're going to jump in. We're just going to look at our idol stories. We're going to look, look at our idol stories, verses 1 to 4. All right. Chapter 5, verse 1 to 4, Big B, King Belshazzar, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. Let's pause there. Up to this point, we've been talking about Nebuchadnezzar up all through the book of Daniel. What has Nebuchadnezzar been doing? He has been building a gigantic kingdom, one of the biggest kingdoms in the ancient world. So big that you had to register like whether, what tribe and tongue and language, where you were from, but you're all under this gigantic, monolithic nation. He was so cool he was su- such a diva that he built this gigantic golden statue to his name, who he was, and he threw people into a gigantic burning pit who didn't bow down to it. That's some serious stuff. Now, we turn to chapter 5, and what is Belshazzar doing? He's the follow-up king, So There's a big party. There's already this sense of kind of like, wah-wah, like, <laughs> just not, he is just missing the mark. Nebuchadnezzar, big nation, huge kingdom, Balthazar, bro throws a kick and party. Not quite the same. Verse two, Balthazar, when he tasted the wine, right, maybe you might translate that, when he was getting a little buzzed, when he was a little under the influence, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Do you notice before we get into kind of dissecting some of this, when it comes to verse 4, his we're going to praise all these things, but leads up to his, all these sensory languages, right? Sensory words. Like he was, he was really digging that wine, really digging it. Not only was the, t- was the wine tasting really good, but you know what's really going to match up to this wine right now? got to get some gold goblets. Bro, we got to get some gold goblets out here. Not only are they gold goblets, I want to make sure that everybody knows that I am the king. So I'm going to take the gold goblets from these people that I dominated, these Israelites, these Hebrew people way out there, like way out in these dusty lands. We dominated those suckers, and I took their stuff from their God's house, and I'm going to drink my, my wine out of their God's stuff, just to show you how powerful I am. You see, there is not merely just kind of like don't get drunk, guys. Like, that's not the point of this passage. Like, the point of this passage is to help us begin to see how comical, how incredible his idolatry, when we get here in verse 4, when he drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and all these things, there is more going on behind the scenes before we get to this point of outright idolatry, right? He's got all of his friends, right? You don't, when you throw a party to have like a fun time, how many of you throw, like, hey, a thousand of my Facebook friends show up for this party? Like, you really got something to prove. if You're inviting a thousand of your friends over. Like, if you're, we were just, I was just talking about weddings over here. Uh, if you're throwing a wedding and you've got a thousand people, you better be, like, uh, who are the royalty, royalty, king? <laughs> i looked at my wife. Yeah, those guys, the, the, those British people. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be like royal level to get like a thousand plus people to your wedding. You got to be serious. You got something to prove. There is something going on where you are not merely just like, hey, let's have a good time and things got out of hand. This is, there's something going on in the service. So before, the way we get to understanding what's going on under the hood of verse four, right? They drink wine and praise the gods of et cetera. Take a look with me at verse three. Verse three helps us get under the hood of what's going on there. Then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. You see, in order to do this idolatry that they wanted, they had to start by taking God's things that were intended for God's worship for their own purposes. I want to pull out a couple of New Testament verses and we'll swing back to help you understand this. Can we throw up, do I, did I get, um, this is totally my fault if not. First John 2, do we got that slide? That, boom, sweet, man, these guys are awesome. First John chapter 2, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the, note this word, desires of the flesh, and there it is again, desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's jump over to uh, James 1. Remember this word, desires, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desires when it has conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We'll see if that up there for a second, because you see, you take that, and then you take that filter, and you throw it on Daniel 5, and you see here, right, they brought out the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, and then verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold, etc. There is a desire that is being shown that kind of lives between those two verses. There is a desire going on there. So simply, he is not just doing sinful stuff, right? He's not just kind of like doing bad things. His heart, Big B's heart is idolizing money, fame, and sex. And most shockingly, he is using God's things intended for God's worship to worship his own desires. His desires become the center point of who he is. And he must take, it's almost like, He can't help himself but take God's things and use them to worship his own idols because that is how desires work, right? We take the things around us and we use them to worship what is going on on the inside. That's what we are beginning to see here in Daniel chapter 5. So let me just pull up one more verse to help us begin to see this. So Psalm 135. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands, They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Do you notice that over here when Peter read this for us? Verse 23. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. There's a direct echoing of this verse, Psalm 135, in the idolatry of what's happening here. You see, it's not merely that idolizing his his love (laughs) of power or money or sex or whatever it is, is uh, taking God's things to worship his own idols. He's now becoming like what he worships he's an idiot. (laughs) he's, 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 He's acting like somebody who is thoughtless because his idols are thoughtless desires, right? He is acting like somebody who cannot hear. You notice how the end of this chapter ends with him unable to hear Daniel? It's because his idols are unable to hear, right? When you worship uh, money, sex, and power, approval, appraise. You cannot hear correction because it does not fit into the desires of your heart. That is what's going on here. We're beginning to see he yearns, right? What are the things that, da- that, that Big B, Balthazar yearns for? I, I'm just going to guess because we don't get into it. It's more of this as a tapestry to help us begin to see our own hearts. But I'm just going to guess, right? He wants to be famous, right? He wants to be seen. And so what you do when you want to be famous is you throw a big banging party and you throw it with all the best drinks with the best stuff. And that's what he does, right? He is absolutely insecure. So he must have bring a thousand people <laughs> into his house to throw a big party and show off his stuff. You will love. You will be loved. You might say, Belshazzar might be saying this to himself. B- Big B, you'll be loved once everybody has a good time. He wants to show off how powerful he is, so he brings in all of the things that he's dominated other countries to get, right? And kind of like any sort of guy who's the son of a gangster. Actually, he didn't get it. His dad got it, but you know, daddy's credit card, you know that sort of thing. He yearns. His desi- He desires. To be seen and loved and enjoyed. And so he does all these things with God's things to worship his idols and he becomes like them. We are not any different than Belshazzar. The difference for us is that we have now this opportunity to respond and see he did not. Belshazzar's his ticket's been signed. He is he is off to the slaughter. But on the inside, our hearts are no different you ever been to a, uh, an Eastern country or a country that has more kind of, more overtly like um, pagan worship or just kind of like idolatry in their country, and I don't mean that like in a negative sense, I just mean it as a historical sense. Some of them will have in their living room, you might say, the, the shrine to whatever their idols are. So they'll have a shrine in their living room, It's just kind of like a part of the family furniture, you know, like you've got all your family pictures up, they would just come over and say, ah, they're your idols maybe that's true. Um, You know, here is their shrine, and inside of our own hearts, over the mantle place of the fire in our living room of our hearts, is this little, uh, this shrine of all of our own little gods. And all of our own little gods don't have, you know, sun god, or sex god, or whatever it is. They have terms like approval, power, control, pleasure, avoidance of suffering, Right? Those are the sort of idols that we have in our own hearts. And they tell us a story. You see, the reason Belshazzar got here is these idols had appealed to him in a way that they told a story. If you throw this party, you will be loved. Right? Idols tell us a story. My life only has meaning if I have fill in the blank. Right? Some of you are aware of like the Christian tradition. We had the Westminster Confession of Faith. First, fish, first question of the Westminster Confession of Faith What is the chief end of man? Is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Your idols tell you a story. The only way, what is the chief end of your life? Well, when I have power, then I will be full of life and my life will be fulfilled. I will say that in my experience, so for example, we meet in the recovery center. My experience is anybody who struggles with addiction, they are not driven we are not driven to addiction because we want to get high. Like that's not, like that might be the first time. Underneath the hood of addiction is a narrative as a story that says, life only has meaning if I can stop the pain. Life only has meaning if I can stop the suffering. Life only has meaning if I can forget the bad things. That's where the addiction comes from, because it's really not about the drugs or the alcohol or whatever it is. It's really about the inner narrative. And those things are used to serve that inner narrative. Same thing with power, right? People get all bent out on power, right? The, the, the inner narrative is something along the lines of, my life only has meaning if my way is enforced. If my way is enforced, I get angry, I freak out, I yell, I scream, because I must have power. And bro, I better have it now on my terms. That's my idol, right? We don't scream and yell and get angry (laughs) because it's just like a biological thing. I mean, unless you have got schizophrenia or something like that. Like, you know, it, it is something where you must serve the idol, and you will bring everybody else around you and you will use the people around you to get the idol. So with addiction, we use the people around us to get the idol. If it's a sex addiction, use people to get the the addiction. If it's a power addiction, everybody feels used around you because they are just being pawns in your story to get that idol satisfied. If it's, I don't know, a control idol, very similar to power, my life only has meaning if I'm able to get mastery, Over fill in the blank area of my life. It could be your physical appearance, it could be your diet, it could be your work. It could be a number of idols that function in very different ways that you must get control over. Right? It could be your kids, it could be your spouse, it could be a number of things. These are all ways in which we begin to see that these idols, they have a story. I will only be happy with blank. I can feel this in my own life, in this yearning for affirmation. I can feel like I have been taken advantage of. I can feel like I am ignored. I can feel like you fill in the blank. And frankly, you know, with four kids, young kids that are highly demanding, um, the story can easily be, right? They're just highly demanding and they're just being kids. It's not like they're like overtly trying to like be like, you know, me, 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 all the time. And just being kids, you know? But the inner narrative, because I need affirmation, is to feel like I'm being taken advantage of all the time. And just, just being kids. It's just, you know, it's just the way it is. What is the way in which you begin to feel these inner narratives of your own heart, right? Because it's not that this phone <laughs> has made you into a self-centered person. It just happens to be that this phone is designed to serve that idol. And it's the most convenient use of your time to serve the idol of praising self. You know? That that's the way it works. I mean, I'm not going to say that everybody's phone has that way, but Michelle and I were talking last night about our the beginning of our when we were dating in college. And it was like a phone when we were back in college was just a phone. <laughs> like you couldn't do all this other stuff with it. I remember getting my first text on my phone and I was like, what is this magic? What is this thing? But now these devices are all about the praise of self. And it's not because uh, there's inherently wrong technology in it. It's because that device has been tailor-made to serve this idol. I must be praised, right? So we use God's things that are designed to praise God and to enjoy Him to get and satisfy wrong desires. Now, let me make a quick comment before we move on. These are all ways in which we twist the world around us towards these desires, right? You notice there's the the things in the temple that were made and the having the the, the wine and having uh, the gold cups and all the stuff from God's house in the story. They're all good things, right? They're they're totally fine. But the story shows how they get twisted to serve this idolatry and they get praised. Peter reminded me when we were kind of talking about preparing the sermon. The approval idolatry really only becomes idolatry when we crave the approval as an ultimate thing. He reminded me of this instance in the life of Jesus. Jesus receives words of affirmation from the Father at his baptism. And that's a good thing. But only in as much as it connects him more deeply to the Father. Desires are not wrong. Our direction and how we use them is. It's not wrong to want to have control in your life. I'm telling you, you you live chaotically, that's actually like the Proverbs talk about, that's the way to become an absolute fool, right? You want to have control in your life, you want to have self-control, you know, pay your bills on time, you know, those sort of things, right? But when you make control your ultimate thing and that your life only has matter, you then are like apologizing for all the ways in which you can't get to that that control idol, you know? Like, it's good to want to be affirmed and to feel meaningfully involved with the people around you and loved it's bad when your sense of identity hinges on getting it on your terms all the time. Is it making sense here? Are we tracking? Okay. We're going to move on here. Verse 17 to 23. See, our idol stories, we're going to look at very quickly. Um, Our feeble knowledge. Now, the reason I'm bringing this out here is because um, we see how um, uh, Belshazzar was set up for success. But just like us, he uses that tool, and he fails at it. He uses his knowledge, and he fails at just kind of knowing what he should have known. All right, so verse 17, 23. Then Daniel answered the king, answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Remember, the king was going to be like, hey, I'm going to give whoever can figure out what's written on the wall. I'm going to give him all this stuff. I'm going to make him third in the kingdom. You know, the vice vice president, like, what was that, the secretary of state or something like that, whoever's the third in line. I'm going to make them like super cool, super powerful. They're going to be like my second right-hand man. And Daniel, he says and answers and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. I just want to pause and just say, bro, like if you're talking back to the king, like you've got some serious game. <laughs> like he's just kind of being like, keep your stuff, bro. I don't have it. Don't want it. Don't need it. Keep it. I'm just going to tell you what you should have known. I'm going to tell you what how to interpret this because uh, that 's being faithful, and i 'm that type of guy. so here 's Daniel. here he goes. Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing on the, uh, to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And before he gets there, he tells a story here 's story time with Uncle Daniel. O King. The most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages, and, tr- and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. When his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that, he dealt pr- so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingdom, kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. And he was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. And he was dwelling with the wild donkeys, and he fed like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, right? Here's Daniel saying, bro, you knew all this. I mean, it's literally in the verse. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords and your wives, your concubines, have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which did not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose is all your ways you have not honored. Right? Daniel's not only being edgy, but he's pointing out this basic thing. Bro, you should have known. You had all the resources. You had this whole story of how your dad was totally humbled by God's mighty hand. Your dad who ruled over this whole thing he humbled him. You should have known. And the problem for Belshazzar is that he knew the story, but he didn't live in the story. He knew this reality. He had all the truth, but he had not been humbled by the story's reality. He had not lived under its power. He did not know the God of the story. And frankly, this is the way most of us, how we often think about change, right? I just want to say this. Nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, I really want to break the Ten Commandments. You know what? I you know this morning I've woken up, great night of sleep. <sighs> Murder sounds like good thing today. Like nobody does that. Nobody says, you know what? I really think stealing that's gonna make the day better. Let's go out and get some stuff and steal it. That's not the way anybody lives their lives, right? Nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, How can I break the Ten Commandments? <laughs> right? Belshazzar knew the story. He had the knowledge. He didn't live in the story right? We do the same thing, right? It's not like when um, I'm scrolling through weightlifting equipment and all this stuff and I think, hmm, I really want to buy that stuff. It's not like I'm suddenly like, if I'd only memorized that verse, thou shalt not covet, then I wouldn't be wanting this stuff, right? There's this whole history in evangelicalism in America today that says, if you just slap a Bible verse on it, you're going to fix your sin. You know, you struggle with lust. Let's throw some verses on about, you know, not lusting. Ah, very good. Not lusting anymore. There's, no, there's all these verses of like, you know, a gentle word turns away wrath. Oh, if only I had memorized that verse, I wouldn't have yelled at my wife. Like, it's not the way, that's how we think about change, that somehow, if only we had known the right things, how we would have done the right things. That makes, that frankly, that gets rid of our, like, how uh, culpable and guilty we are for our sin, but it also just does not understand how we live, right? You can have all the right knowledge in the world, and it will never change you, right? So, for example, everybody in this room, I know you could be totally committed to healthy foods, you love to love to uh, shop at Whole Foods, right? You get there like extra special Whole Foods food and all that stuff. You buy all your foods there. The moment you walk past a little Debbie, you're trying to figure out how to justify that sucker, right? You're trying to think through, how can I get that little zebra, little Debbie? Take the top layer off, and lick the inner layer off, and then put them back together and put them back on the shelf, because <laughs> you really just want the stuff in the middle. Here's how it works with with healthy foods, right? We don't eat healthy foods because we just suddenly wake up and realize like, oh, little little Debbie's are chemical trash, and I um, I should eat good food, right? We don't wake up and think that. The way we think about growing and wanting to eat better foods for us is realizing, like, I want to be alive in 20 years and not die of a heart attack from 20 Little Debbies a day. (laughs) You know? And so we change the story. We had to change the story of how those things affect us, right? Everybody knows Little Debbies taste good. High fructose corn syrup is, right? Really good. But it will kill you. (laughs) Healthy foods are good for you we all know that, and they taste like cardboard. But we don't desire to eat good foods that, you know, with a little salt, they don't taste like quite like cardboard, you know, until we put them into a story that changes how we think about them, right? It's the same thing. You can memorize all the Bible verses in the world about how not to get angry, and you will still become an angry, rage person because the inner narrative of your idols will still be satisfied. You may not yell, because, you know, that breaks the obvious commandment, but you will power play that sucker to get your, get your way and you will manipulate the conversation all you want. So, for example, there is no cat, po- cat poster in the world that is going to stop you from getting angry at your boss the next time you're slighted at work, right? It could be Lego movie cat poster, hold on. <laughs> you can look at that cat poster and say, ah, now that I've seen this cat poster, I will not get angry at my boss and yell at them or my kids or yell or do whatever, right? That's not going to stop you. There is an inner narrative that must be changed, right? That's what this is all about. We need a, bit, a better story. James K. A. Smith, a couple quotes from this book, You Are What You Love. Can we throw these up? You won't be liberated from deformation by new information. That's what we've been talking about this whole, this whole point, right? Just like Balthazar, you can have all the right information, but you won't be liberated from the deforming power, the de power, the dehumanizing power of your idols simply by having new information, right? There is a deeper story. So let's go to the next James K. Smith's quote. Our idolatries then are more liturgical, right? That's just a big word for stories. They're more stories than theological, truth, reality, Our most alluring idols are less intellectual inventions and more affection projections. They are the fruit of disordered wants, not just misunderstanding or ignorance. I'll tell you this. You never get in an argument with your spouse, with your friends, with your siblings, because generally, because there was a misunderstanding of information, right? What do you mean we were supposed to be there at 7 o'clock? I thought it was 6.30. That's pretty easy to figure out, right? Right? You get in arguments with your spouse, your family, your friends, your co-workers, because there is a conflict of idols. Not idols on both sides. It may just be an idol on your side that you need to repent of. But there is something, there is a desire, there is a disordered wanting that butts into something that's not given in. That's where arguments come from. So you guys track what I'm saying? All right, so we're gonna pick up here verse 24 and we're gonna see God's powerful judgment. Where does this story land us? All right, then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, teke, parsin, and this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to end, by the way, that was twice, so that's basically, when God counts something twice, kind of like Santa Claus, except totally different and better, Um, And worse in a certain sense, um, you know what you're getting, and it's coming fast. Like, when God counts twice, um, things are not good. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is, and you might read that is, is already divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, Belshazzar, gave the command. And Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and the proclamation was made about him, that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belchisar, the king, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. I mean, have you ever met somebody that just like, they can't give up on a breakup? Like, they just can't let go? This is kind of like, Balthazar is like so committed to, like, nah, bro, this is my kingdom. These are my friends. Like, this is like the power thing. Like, we're in, we're in charge for forever. And Daniel just kind of basically said, like, yeah, but, but God just forced you guys to break up. He's like, nah, man, we're still going cool. It's, it's, it's great. And then he dies. Like, that's, <laughs> like, you just can't accept it. This is what's going on because that's the way idols work. Belshazzar is so far gone, he's so given into his idols that he cannot hear, just like his idols, the judgment of God. Here's what's going on, right? God will judge the idolatry of Belshazzar. He will judge the idolatries of our heart, and it will happen, right? God is not mocked. He will judge the sin of our lives, and we are often, we will be, just like Belshazzar, found wanting Why did you do this? What is the story in your life? Why is this going on? Why are these wrong things happening? When God judges us, we we will be found wanting. But unlike Belshazzar, our wanting has a different wall and a different writing above a different king. You see, our idolatry is met with the writing on the wall, in the theater of our sin. It is written above a different king who receives a different damnation, who dies a different death. Balthazar got the writing of God's judgment above his head. Jesus walks up a hill and when, it write, when they write, here is the king of the Jews, here is the Messiah, the one that our idol, our idols would very quickly reject. We are not very interested in a powerless, naked, helpless king dying on a bit of wood by rusty nails on a forgotten hill in the suburbs of Palestine. We want him out of the way, but that writing above his head is the judgment of God for our sins that he gladly took. He gladly stands under the writing of God's judgment for our sins, right? No matter how much you think you are a good person, your idols of approval will ultimately confront and be confronted by the goodness and security of Jesus Christ. And left to our own devices, our idols would gladly cruci- crucify him. All of our idols lead to the death of Christ. He was put in the balance of our wanting. And he was found worthy. He was accepted. He, when divided, healed. So you notice another thing in this passage. There is another writing on the wall, and there is also another feast before an execution. Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, he hosted a feast before his own execution. Balthazar's was for his own idols and to the destruction of his friends. Christ's was for our sins and for the healing of the nations. Balthazar's kingdom was divided and scattered because of his sin. Christ's body was crucified and destroyed and died for the healing of his people, for the unity of his people. You see, when the judgment of God comes down on Belshazzar's wanting, he is left to unadulterated, unending judgment from God. And if you stick with your idols, that's where they land you. But if you stand under this other king, this King Jesus who died a deplorable death under the weight of our idolatry and what it deserves before God, then we receive the healing of his resurrection power in us we receive the power to be able to see our idols and see them functioning in our lives and begin to see those things no longer have power over me. I can still have this acclaim, this approval idolatry thing going on in the inside, but the final narrative, the final end, the final judgment that I deserve for it has been dealt with in Jesus. And so now by his spirit, I can say, you will not be the final story for my functional daily life. I will, by God's power and spirit, His people with me, helping me figure out and find a different way to have a different narrative for approval. I will find my approval in God Himself. I will not find my approval in others and using them for me, right? This idolatry reality is changed because its power has been unleashed on Jesus. And now in him, I find a liberation from God's balances of justice and mercy being laid on Jesus. And now I'm liberated by his story. So now when I begin to look at my idols, I begin to see a different story playing out. So here's where I want to end us. I want to end us with one of the weirder endings of the epistles in the New Testament. You guys cool? Can we hang out with this for a second? 1 John chapter 5, we all get to the end of 1 John, and we're kind of like, this is a weird ending. What's going on here? So 1 John chapter 5, here John, like a good pastor, he tells the good story. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, and His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's a weird ending, isn't it? It's just a weird, what is he doing by ending with that? But I think after working through Daniel 5, and begin to kind of see the story play out, we begin to understand what Pastor John is doing. He's contrasting two stories. Here is the true story that leads to true worship. We know the Son of God has come. Here is the, the false story that will continue to snag at you and to pull at you, and to continue to grab at you. It is your idols. And he's not talking about Indiana Jones, right? He is talking about our desires for control. He is talking about our idols of power. He is talking about our idols of pleasure. So what are the stories you tell yourself every day, and where do they lead? When you think about the world we live in, in the ways you're slighted, ignored, belittled every day, do those stories play out in despair, anger, and indifference? What if, here's what this passage demands of us, what if, what would happen if we took those moments and brought them to Jesus, who knows the full power and of all our idols, and asked him to help us live in his story? I was doing that this morning, feeling some feeling some of my narratives play out in my head. Jesus, I don't feel a deep resolution here, but I need you to help me tell a different story here. Your desires are not what's wrong with you. What's wrong is that you take those desires and you do them on your own terms with God's things. Worship, worshiping Jesus, retools and reshapes and rewires our affections. So... As we continue to worship him now, live in the story of God's judgment and mercy, perfectly balanced in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure